This is The Trey Blocker Show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Trey Blocker Show. Today's guest is Brennan Anthony, the director of the Texas Music Office. Brennan, thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, Trey. I appreciate it. Brennan was appointed by Governor Greg Abbott uh, to be the czar of Texas music back in 2015. Have you gotten your title officially changed to that yet? No, uh, we're, we're still working. Still that, working that on it. It takes quite a bit of doing, evidently. I, you know, I like it. I, like I did it. too. I, it would look good on a business card. It would. Yeah. We're going to talk a lot about the Texas Music Office today, what you've been up to over the past couple of years, and, and what the objective of the Music Office is. But before we do that, I, I want to talk a little bit about you and your background and how you ended up where you are today. And I know at a very young age, your parents put a a violin in your hands and said, play this. They did. Around yeah. three or four, they did. Three or four. Uh-huh. I spent the majority of my childhood uh, doing normal childhood things. Good. In addition to that, <laughs> I did uh, an hour a day. I did the Suzuki method. It's a pretty cool method of teaching kids how to read music, hear music, uh, learn by ear, and I did that for uh, many years up until high school, really. So I know the Suzuki method is used for kids. Mm -hmm. Is that an equally useful method for adults. I keep trying to figure out how I'm going to learn how to read music and play music. I may, I'm, I may just give it up at this point. No, Is I it mean, too late? you can Is teach an old dog me? new tricks, even one as old as you are, I guess. Uh, thank you. Thank I, you know, you someone that. told me the other day, because we have a two and a half year old daughter, and I want to start her on violin to see if she gravitates toward it. Right. Towards it. And I was talking to a, a teacher, and they said that that particular method has changed so much that I might not even recognize it today. Huh. So I don't know. Okay. Honestly, don't know. Can you sum up that method for those who don't know? It, the, the way I understood it was it taught fundamentals of theory and it taught um, kids in a way that allowed them to be able to play by ear later more okay. easily right. than possibly other methods. And it certainly proved true for me. And so that, that was my takeaway from it. So you're not strictly learning to read music and play sheet music? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I found it relatively easy to hear something and interpret it. Okay. Uh, versus uh, several of my friends who grew up strictly classical um, from another teaching method who found it very, very hard to play off the page, if right. you will. Yeah. Sure. Mm -hmm. So you grew up playing classical violin music. I did, 100%. Okay. Yeah. And, and, you know, everybody gets confused. So always, and, and you and I have talked about this for years, but everybody gets confused about the difference between a violin and a fiddle. And as you've said before, it has nothing to do with the instrument and everything to do with the room you're in. That's right. That's right. Good summation. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's exactly right. Okay. Yeah. The violin and fiddle are almost indistinguishable right. physically. But so it's just a genre of music that you're going to play? Or yeah, that's right. That's right. And even classical players will call their instruments fiddles, and it, it goes back and forth. So. Whatever you feel like. Blurry lines there. Yeah, right. That's right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So at some point as you grew up and you... At what point did, did you feel like, hey, I don't want to do this anymore? Did you get to, get to that point as a kid? Yeah, I did. I mean, it was around high school when high school was kicking off, and, um, you know, the struggle to fit in was really in high gear, and, mm. you know, playing classical violin wasn't my ticket into the social circles that I thought <laughs> I wanted to be in at that time. I didn't know right. what I was doing, but uh, sure. no one does. Um, but it did uh, show back up a couple years later when friends of mine started playing acoustic guitars at parties, and I started you know, hearing more and more of the instrument that I loved on records that I identified with. Right. A George Strait record or a Dave Matthews record mm -hmm. or a 
well, that list is endless, being from where, right. where we're from and That's growing right. up in College Station, which is largely a rural place. Most of the music my friends were really getting into had mind spread all over it. And so I started picking it up and playing that kind of stuff. So you figured out you could pull the violin out from under the bed, mm -hmm. call it a fiddle, take it to a party, and be a cool kid. Yeah. Is that it? I, I, yeah, <laughs> I, and I think probably, and I'm not ashamed to say it, it was probably a prime motivating factor. <laughs> Isn't that a prime motivating factor for a lot of musicians, if you were to ask them? Why did you pick up a guitar? Why did you start singing? Yeah, I was talking to Kelly, my wife. We were talking about why people would want to stand in front of that many people and play. And, you know, there are a lot of answers to that question, but one of them is, you know, that's, that's a pretty cool way to fit in in a crowd when you're younger. Sure, sure. And it takes you different places. But, that's right. Yeah. Okay, so you grew up in College Station. Is saying you grew, grew up in College Station kind of like saying you grew up in Austin? Not, not very many people can say that. You're kind of a unicorn in that regard? Yeah, I guess so, especially given the influx of kids, you know, around fall and, and, uh, right. and spring semesters. Like, you've got 100,000 people who roll in there brand new all the time. And yeah, being from College Station was, yeah, it was very rural, small, safe place to grow up. It was fun. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you had this massive university there. So. Right. But because of Texas A&M University, that's how you met some of today's best country music artists. Isn't that correct? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, they were coming through to play some of their first gigs. This new generation of people who were coming right. up as Texas singer-songwriters were coming through and playing small places like The Tap and Hurricane Harry's when they got a little bigger. And that's where we as high, you know, high school cover bands were trying to play. So we mm -hmm. were there, and they were coming through playing some of their first runs through college towns. And so it gave me some proximity to them. So Roger Crager, Corey Morrow, then at some point Pat, you met Pat Green, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, Ingram, Roger, Corey, uh, Pat, those were some of the first people I met. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Roger had come back from taking a Fortune 500 job, had, had left, and had come back to get a master's in accounting, and he would get me to come play his open mics for no money, right. and he would help me do my accounting homework so I could go do those. <laughs> yeah. That sounds like a pretty good deal. Yeah, it was a great yeah. deal for me. I don't know what kind of deal it was for him, but, uh, <laughs> but I did meet Pat. I met him at a backstage at a show. It was a rescheduled show that Corey Morrow was initially supposed to be on. It rained, rained out. I kept my backstage pass, snuck back. Pat was playing, and I said I should be in his band. I told him that. Uh -huh. He said if I wanted to, I could show up at the gig the next night, and we'd see. And I don't think he expected me to show up, but I did. So that was your interview? That was it, yeah. Okay. And I brought my stuff, and I played, and he hired me. So. And you ended up playing full-time for Pat Green's band for almost 15 years? That's right. Yeah. yeah. I played okay. all over the place and on a bunch of records. And, and you all even toured Europe at some point, didn't you? A few times, yeah. Okay. yeah. How was how that? How, how do Europeans react to this, is, this Texas country band? Well, if they're actually Europeans, they love it. Okay. Because it's just sort of a niche thing that's so glamorized. You know, they, they just are, are almost fascinated by it. And then if they aren't, they're expats and they're from Dallas. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so, That's right. Or they're military. So and they're, they're absolutely just, showing up to the Pat Green. Yeah, show. 100%. Yeah. And, and just in rare form. And, yeah. You know, I, I thought about this a second ago, and I have to ask, when, you, when your parents put that violin in your hand at age three or four, what were the ex their expectations? Where did they think you were going to go with that? Or was it, I know your dad was a college professor, mm -hmm. was it just a way to kind of round out your education? Did they ever expect you to come home and say, hey, mom, dad, I'm, I'm joining a band? Well, no, probably not. Okay. In fact, we went round and round about that, uh, as you can only imagine, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, no, I had an ear problem when I was a kid, when I was a really young kid, and I had all sorts of terrible ear problems. And I don't know if this is the driving 
force behind them wanting to start my music lessons, but it was endangering my hearing and possibly tone recognition. Hmm. Part of the reasoning uh, was they were going to put me on an instrument to see if I could recognize tones and, and pitch and that sort of thing. And then being academics, both of them, uh, mom on the uh, elementary level and dad in the uh, college level, they had done the reading and that suggested that this would help me in math and, and the higher, right. higher functions and that sort of thing. Right. I don't know if that proved to be true at all. Apparently not if you were having Roger Craiger do your accounting homework. Mm, yeah, I, you know, <laughs> it, it skipped a generation. My dad's a statistician and, and I'm good at playing an instrument somewhat. Sure. But no, I, I don't think they ever expected me to uh, come home and say I was going to be in a band. And, and I'd already been doing it. I'd started playing 75 to 100 shows by a sophomore year of college. Oh, wow. Come graduation time, which they insisted was going to come. I said, this is, this is the job I'm going to take. I already have the job I'm going to have after college, so I'm just going to keep doing it. Right. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, I'm sure it was a tense time for them. I was <laughs> gung-ho about it, so yeah, nothing sure was going would. to stop, stop me right. at that point. That's right. Well, and I, I think there are a lot of you know kids who grew up and, and they're playing instruments and they think, I want to join a band, I want to go on the road, and I'm sure those are all experiences that you wouldn't trade for the world, but it's not as glamorous as people want to think it is, is it? Well, I mean, maybe the question should be, you know, or could be, you know, would I want that for my kid? Okay. Probably not, because okay. while all the all the stories, you know, that you live to tell, all the people that I met, like th those are incredible for right. my life. Those were formative experiences for me, but there's a side to it that's really difficult. Mm. And those are the things that they don't teach you in school, if you will. You sure. know, it's uh, a lot of time being away from meaningful relationships at home. And I'm not talking about wife and kids, if those happen later, but real you know friendships that you establish by being in a place and growing up true being a professional in a place you just right. don't you don't really make those uh, as well and you miss weddings and you miss things and mm -hmm. it's tough and um, it's a lot of fun and it's extremely unique only a, a small percentage of people have that kind of experience but right. I would never put a kid in a position where he or she would have to go do that if they right. chose to do it and I couldn't talk him out of it. I'd support him all the way, but it's it's really a difficult life. So, so your your daughter, your very lovely daughter Anderson, if if Thanks. she comes to you in 18 years and says, "Dad, I'm joining a band," mm -hmm. what are you going to say? Well, I know, uh, given my experience, that there's really no talking someone out of it. Um, Good point. But I would be very upfront about um, some things that she should keep in the forefront. Right. You know? Right. And uh, hopefully, you know, she'd go into it with her eyes more wide open than I did. My parents had no way to prepare me for that kind of lifestyle. How mm -hmm. could they? But, right. you know, I would like to think that by that time she would have some pretty in-depth knowledge about what it means to be an industry professional and maybe ahead of the game at that point. And, Absolutely. Yeah. You know, so I would feel less worried than looking back, talking to my 17-year-old self. Uh, right. I would be terrified talking to that person right now. Okay, that yeah. makes sense. And, and I guess if you're going to go into that industry, there would be no better mentor uh, than, than to have you as a father saying, here's what I went through, here's what you should be on guard for, Here, here's a good way to do this, a bad way to do this. Yeah, I mean, all I have is my experience. Right. <laughs> I mean, I, right. My experience is unique to me and the way, the way I dealt with it and, and the eyes I saw it through, but that's, all, that's what I could share. And I did uh, come up in the musician ranks, uh, both amongst people here in Nashville and other places, and the kids whose parents were already in the industry, maybe as established figures or mm -hmm. maybe as journeymen or songwriters or whatever else, they just understood things that even today I don't you know, necessarily understand. I'm just coming to understand them. Right. But they already knew that stuff. And so 
Yeah, I, I, I hope that I can impart some wisdom. And that's what I try to do with the job now, too, frankly. Yeah. So let's yeah. talk about that. I mean, you spent 15 years on the road traveling with Pat Green's band. Then you went on to work for an e-commerce company mm -hmm. that was focused on the music industry. And now you are running the Texas Music Office. So you've gone through a great transition and gained a lot of great experience that you're now putting to use promoting the music industry in Texas. So mm -hmm. tell us about that. Yeah, so I liken the transition to a professional athlete with none of the money and none of the fame <laughs> transitioning on to a new life. You almost have to retire from it completely to start the next thing. Right. And that's very, very much what I did. And so I got fortunate to be a part of a startup called One Live Media. It's still going today. I stand mm -hmm. in touch with those folks. And we focused on um, helping artists through their online brands sell tons of merch and we help them get that merchandise to their fans it's really it sounds like a really rudimentary part of the business but it's so important today right we did that for artists like beyonce and willie nelson and a whole bunch of other marquee acts that was a, a drastic change of direction but it kept me in the music industry and it expanded my focus sure. and uh i loved what i learned what i learned on that job and i love the connections i made and about four or so years on after that i you know got the call from you know friends in the transition group who asked if i was interested in the texas music office and after i did some research on it of course you know i was and so that's been i'm coming up on almost a four-year right first term wrap on that right on that thing so i'd say the first year was at least the first nine months were spent almost solely on an audit of what the office was at that time when I came in, mm -hmm. what could be done better to improve this, the system, the core systems of the office, and then what were our capabilities going forward. And then the last three years have been implementing the things we thought we should add on. So the office itself has been around for almost 30 years. Yeah, that's that right? right. That's right. Okay. And it's a division within the governor's office mm -hmm. of Texas. Okay. So I noticed that, that the, the website has certainly gone through some wholesale change, and there's a whole lot of information on there. Um, so from a business development standpoint, is your objective to bring more, to bring music labels to Texas, help startups? What, what's your focus most of the time? Yeah, well, thanks for bringing up the user-friendly uh, <laughs> nature of the site now. I mean, I understand how people, or I think I understand how people find you digitally, and I think I understand what friction means from a UX perspective. Mm -hmm. And so we, we really tried to work hard to make that you know, easier to navigate. I asked my, my father to take a look at the site and if he can understand it and tell me over the phone what he thinks we do for a living, then we're translating well digitally. Sure. And so we, sure. that, was our, that was one of our first things we tried to do is really make it easier to navigate. What is the website address? TexasMusicOffice.com. Okay. Yeah. And so, yeah, one of our goals is business development and we try to make it really easy for companies who are interested in moving to Texas regardless of what they do within the scope. Uh, we, we try to make it easy for them to find a landing spot wherever they find, you know, uh, would be appropriate for them. So we're not Austin-centric there. A lot of music industry companies who are based in LA, Nashville, New York, or Atlanta uh, do seem to look at Austin as the center of gravity for Texas, and that makes sense. Sure. So we've got, we've got folks who have made that decision. Where I focus my energies uh, are on companies that I think could be instrumental in helping creators monetize intellectual property. And I know that sounds like a really high-minded way to say something, but 
we don't have a lot of the rungs on the ladder that artists need at the beginnings of their career here, mm. and so we lose them really young to these industry centers that I mentioned. Okay. And so we want them to have great relationships, personal relationships with independent digital distri distribution like TuneCore, which has now moved here, and with performance rights organizations like BMI, who's now going to move here, and they're announcing right. Thursday that they're moving here. Oh, very uh, good. Which is a very a big win for us, and they're going to expand some uh, core functions here. Wonderful. Um, and that has a two-pronged benefit for us. One, they're doing actual business here, and two, they're fantastic at community development. You know, we've asked them not just to come here and work, but to help us network our industry community. So that will be a fantastic uh, get for Texas. Absolutely. So we focus on that. You know, what are really strategic components that uh, would do our people good here, and that's who we focus on. Okay. Yeah. And then you're doing some really cool things as well as far as helping kids get instruments. Is that part of the, you've got this really cool license plate now, the Texas mm -hmm. Music Office license plate, that anybody with a registered vehicle in the state of Texas can get. And they should. Uh, and yeah. they should. <laughs> and so the proceeds, the net proceeds from that license plate purchase, where do they go and, and what are you doing with that? Yeah, thanks. I love talking about this program. So 22 of every $30 that you spend on a uh, Texas Music License Plate go to a fund that we administer that puts instruments and lessons in the hands of kids who need them. We have to be approached by a nonprofit, and that nonprofit will go through our e-grants process, and then we'll award these grants to them. We give kids lessons uh, who are in transitional homes. Uh, yeah. We give lessons and instruments to kids who are excelling in a, a, a community orchestra program but can't afford the instrument, or you know they want to get them a nicer one, or, or whatever else. A thousand different details, but. Right. Uh, we also rewrote part of our legal constraints when we uh, relaunched the uh, program in 16 to allow us to work with communities as well. So these are communities that uh, they want to create some sort of musical component at a, uh, a city festival or something like that, but they can't afford it. You know, we, we've done this all over, all over the state now. So these are communities that would not have you know, been able to afford a local musician to play at their county, whatever it is. And, okay. You know, Tons of examples, and, yeah. and I'd be happy to provide any information to people who are interested in it. So that program has been around since 04, and what we did in 16 was rebrand it with the new uh, gotcha. look of the office, and uh, we rewrote the rules to give us a little bit more flexibility. Uh, but my predecessor put that in place in 04, and it did really great things. Right. Uh, but what we feel like we've done is rebrand it, make it a little bit more maybe generic and recognizable, more branded, and we've enlisted the help of a ton of Texas music artists who have done social media pushes for us, everyone from Randy Rogers to Leon Bridges and Gary Clark. Oh, I mean, wow. Runs the gamut and some fantastic videos come in. Kevin Russell did a great one for us. And that's really pushed the thing to a whole new place. And we've had brands like Anheuser-Busch who've taken note right. and have held these concerts for us. Uh, and they've raised a lot of money for us now, which is sure. great. So it's, we've taken it to a whole new, whole new level. And what about interaction with, with public school programs? Is there any, anything at that level? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. But they have to be via nonprofit as well. Gotcha. Yeah. So they can't approach us directly. So I notice, you know, you and I have been friends for a long time, but as is often the case with busy people these days, I know more about what you're up to by following your Instagram than, than talking on the phone. <laughs> but it seems like you've been all over the place lately promoting Texas music. What are some of the cool things you've done lately? Well, one thing, I appreciate you saying that. We do see each other far too seldom because I, I feel like, you know, this responsibility that, that I've said yes to is a big one and it's one I'm really honored to do. Yeah. For that reason, I decided to be where I'm asked to be. And I think right. this ought to be a statewide office and it ought to be an office that's promoting the state 
outside the state too. Did you just tell me you're running for statewide office? Absolutely not. <laughs> I, I thought we were going to announce something new here. And I want to be clear about yeah, that. Okay. All right. uh, Very clear. You very are not clear. running for statewide office. Clear. Okay. Done. Uh, thank you. And uh, <laughs> or, no, that is not industry. So we, we do travel all over the place. I recently was in Toronto last week for a, a publishing and tech summit. We've leveraged uh, relationships with the Kane Foundation and Kessler Presents to run activations that highlight uh, Texas performers at places like Newport Folk Festival, Americana Fest, International Folk Life Association, South by Southwest. Um, so these are real-life interactions between uh, people all over the country in Texas music. And at those interactions and activations, we talk about the mission of the office and why we're there. Mm-hmm. We attend a bunch of conferences and we help host these, these kind of conferences around the country. And then in the state, I spend a lot of time with communities helping them shore up support for their creative class at home. And uh, that takes me all over the state. And so, you know, long story short, my goal is for the Texas Music Office to be an involved partner with communities around the state, not a figurehead or a masthead, you know, parked in Austin that people can find or like an island that people have to swim to. But we want to be in their communities. And I spend far, far more time in their communities than they do here with us. Right. And I think that's paying dividends already in places like Fort Worth, who, through our help, have been certified a music-friendly community and have now put in, in place grants that are putting their musicians on the road and are, they're creating showcases. And, and really all have come out of a concerted effort around the music-friendly certification we help them achieve. So, so what exactly does that mean? What does a community have to do to get certified as music-friendly? Well, we set a pretty high bar there. We didn't feel that given our time and resources available that you know, driving around the state handing out certificates um, was going to serve anyone uh, in the long term. So mm-hmm. we set a pretty high bar. We've asked cities to create an administratively enforce- enforceable position, a city employee who's going to serve as the city's music liaison to the music community and back and forth. And then they've got to either, um, as Austin did, appoint a city-appointed uh, music commission, or they have to empower a nonprofit advisory board to create forums so that industry stakeholders can come and voice concerns, and those can be translated through the liaison to city council, et cetera. Okay. So, as you can tell, it's a pretty involved process for bureaucracy at a city level. Right. So we spend a lot of time going through the different channels in bigger cities and smaller communities to get them on board. And we certified five at this point, we'll have certified six by next week. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So, given your expertise in the music industry, I've got some broader questions for you I'd like to get your thoughts on. You know, this is completely going to date me, but I'm at a point in my life where I don't really care. I remember being a little kid driving around with my dad in his Chevy Silverado with an 8-track cassette player in it, and I know he always had the Eagles 8-track mm. and, and Creedence Clearwater Revival 8-track. Those, those are the two I remember, and Waylon and Willie. So a lot has, I bring that up to say, a lot has changed. Technology has advanced so rapidly. Mm. We've gone from 8-tracks to cassette tapes to CDs to now hardly any, anyone buys CDs. Right. So now we've got Spotify, we've got Pandora, we've got Google Play and all these other things. How is that affecting the industry, and how does that affect how musicians make a living? Well, that's, that's two very good questions right there. It has affected the industry in a very cataclysmic way. Hmm. When uh, the MP3 was invented and offered to the labels, and it was not accepted, so it was released into the, into the wild, and it did what <laughs> disruptive technology does. It eviscerated a known economy and changed it into something completely different that we're just now starting to really come to, to, to terms and grips with. Right. And laws are just now starting to catch up to. 
as you know, in the, in, in the battle or the tug of war between tech and legislation, tech is always a lap mm -hmm. ahead. That's right. And, and as it should be, that's, that's okay. You know, innovation mm -hmm. happens and then laws come, come uh, about to, you know, to catch up with them, but that's what we're dealing with in the music industry right now. Streaming has taken over as the easiest way to consume. And consumers now are music millionaires is how I've heard it described. You, you, have, you have so much music at your fingertips now right. than you've ever had before. I mean, you, know, you mentioned the days when you used to ride around with your dad with the 8-tracks. Well, for your dad to get the 8-tracks, he had to go to a store That's and right. sift through the ones he wanted. And now the store is everywhere. The store is in your hand. The store is on your computer. Mm -hmm. It's everywhere. But those users have to be responsible about the content that they put on their platforms that we take for granted. They've got free tiers that advertise to you and collect your information. Right. And they've got premium tiers that collect money for those services. Mm -hmm. But they don't always have the right to play everything that's played through those streaming services. And that has brought us to a point that um, these massive class action lawsuits have repositioned the digital services like Spotify and others uh, to come to a place where they have got to play ball. Right. And they've got to fund things like the Mechanical Licensing Collective that's just been put forth in law by the Music Modernization Act that just mm -hmm. passed a couple months ago. Sure. These are very in-depth pieces of legislation. I've got tons of information. If anyone wants to know more <laughs> about that, I don't want to bore anybody. Right. We've come to a place right now where streaming has taken over as the main form of consumption. And we need to protect that. We can't have the music industry go through another, like I said, cataclysmic change that almost destroys the way the music industry works as a whole. Mm -hmm. I think for a while we can, we can assume that streaming's here to stay. I'm not saying they're, they're bad actors, but I think finally streaming services are coming to terms with the idea that they've got to be really responsible or they're going to right. continue to be su almost sued out of existence. Right. So Music Modernization Act has hopefully, hopefully laid some, some framework for that. That Music Modernization Act also... Uh, is going to reset how songwriters are, are, are paid from those things. Okay. May fare it up a little bit. <clears throat> sure. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, I'm very hopeful about that side. Very hopeful. I would think, I mean, to, to put a positive spin on the technological advancements and changes, it's a lot of increased exposure for musicians, bands, artists that wouldn't otherwise be discovered, I would think. I mean, you know, again, going back to my younger days, when we used to trade mixtapes, yeah, you know, or that's somebody hands it's become you a, the modern playlist. That's right. Yeah. You know, with something like Pandora or Spotify, and I don't mean to focus on them unfairly, but the benefit is I can start a playlist on one of those platforms and discover a new artist I might, may not have known about. Right, right. And the reason Pandora very nearly failed is that it would not allow you, since it was non-interactive, wouldn't allow you to set your playlist. Right. Wouldn't allow you to really curate your playlist. Where right. Spotify has 87 million subscribers now because they allowed you to, to curate your own playlist. Plus, make your, they, make your own mixtape. That's right. Yeah. Which is what the way we understood it. Plus, they've right. got these gatekeepers and these different genre verticals that are tastemakers. Ah. And they pay them a lot of money. And they pay. Right. You know, there are people within the company, without the company, or external to the company that put these playlists. And getting on those playlists now is the way for artists to get discovered. You know, hmm. It's one of the top two or three ways for an artist to get discovered. Right. So that's not necessarily taking the place of the top 40 countdown and whatever that we used to listen to sure. on Saturday mornings or whatever else, but it's 
darn close. It sounds like there's probably some gamesmanship that goes along with that as oh, well. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. As with everything, I suppose. Huh? There's politics and everything. And That's there's right. politics to get on a playlist that matters. So tell me, you know, I've gotten fascinated lately, and I certainly wasn't on the front end of this, but people are going back to buying vinyl records, you know, which has kind of come full circle. Yeah. Why is that? Well, vinyl, like you said, does have market share again. It's an appreciable amount of market share, too. Mm -hmm. I think collectors still like having something to hold in their hands. Right. I, think, I think there's an element of that. I think it's not just a hipster thing. I mean, um, the sound quality's better. If you're really into a band and you want to hear a record, which is for the kids out there, that's a, <laughs> that's a piece of creation that's meant to go in a certain order from start to finish and might have two sides. Right. And if you're really into an artist and something they've created, hearing it on vinyl through a good system, you know, there's really no substitute for that. It's just better sound quality, better dynamic range. It's an incredible merch item because you can sell it at a merch table to show for $30. Right. And it's hard to sell a t-shirt for that unless you're a marquee act. People will buy that vinyl though. It's just become sort of an ind indispensable part of a, an artist touring merchandise catalog. So I think you know, the tangible feeling of having something, sometimes they don't even get opened, but you have it and it's a, kind of a thing you've Bought. And then the, the sound quality for audiophiles who are into that is just second to none. Right. And then, uh, yeah, for artists, I mean, man, that's a, that's a big deal to have it. And we were really thrilled to bring Gold Rush vinyl from California to start pressing more in the state. I mean, hmm. to take it back to business development for just a second, we've right. got hand-drawn records in Dallas and we've got Gold Rush vinyl in Austin. And they are slammed. I mean, they have filled a niche that... There's so few uh, facilities out there can actually turn around vinyl in the amount of time that artists need them sure. to, uh, because they're having to plug these vinyl sales into a record release cycle. And if you've got to postpone a record release cycle for six months because you know a northern European company is stacked up, then mm -hmm. come to Texas. Let's let's help you out. But th there's just so much demand on on those folks right now. It's almost hard to keep up. That's incredible. It is, and and a, and a really good thing. So. Should I, are you telling me I should go dig out my dad's 8-track because, 8-track tapes, because those are going to come back at some point too? I don't, I don't know if the argument can be made <laughs> no. that the sound quality on an 8-track was ever the same. Not very good. No. In fact, those pr things probably don't work anymore. I, yeah, yeah, I have not seen an 8-track in a bit. <laughs> Cassettes I've seen. A cassette, cassette might be making sort of a niche hipster comeback. We don't know. Uh, you never know. <laughs> you never know. So... What advice would you give to a young musician coming up today, and he's maybe where you were back when you were at Texas A&M, and you know, he's, he's playing in a cover band and trying to get started. What are the next steps? Well, I mean, network's your friend. You know, Making the right kind of connections early is your friend and treating those with respect and, and following up on them. You, you almost can't coach that, but you, you should try. If you're not a good networker in the music industry and you're trying to come up, you know, it's, it's going to be a tougher road. You know, mm -hmm. some people's God-given talent naturally elevates them, but a lot of people get to where they are because they know, you know, how, how to get there via personal connections. So pay close attention to the people in your circle and then expand that circle. Mm -hmm. If you're a player, like if you actually play an instrument, right. you know, make that your primary focus. You okay. know, make being an expert at your instrument and your gear your primary focus. So let me approach that from a different angle, since we've talked a lot about business development, making sure there's a healthy music industry in the state of Texas. Let's say you're somebody like Trey Blocker and you have absolutely no musical talent whatsoever, no matter how hard you try, but you love music <laughs> and you want to be in the industry. Is there some kind of degree you can go get to get involved in the music industry? Yeah, I, I would strongly recommend that 
if someone is just so hell-bent on being in the music industry, they have to do it, and they're not a player, right. and they know that, that they check uh, our industry directory for college programs that offer training in a hundred different facets of the music industry, and that they go get involved. I mean, I've right. got great friends who have become fantastic accountants and business managers, you mm -hmm. know, who had to be in the music industry, love being around it, love supporting it, but we're never going to make it as, you know, a player. Right. You know, as a player, they're a fantastic accountant, and that's, you know, that's great. And we need more of those people than we actually need of the other, that's true. frankly. Sure. So, uh, yeah, there are tons of ways to get involved. I will give Austin some credit on this. If, if you want to know what's happening in the music industry, there are a hundred ways to find out. There are nonprofits that are helping on the health side, two, two great ones, Hammond Sims. Right. Austin Music Foundation gives weekly and you know, monthly classes on, on anything under the sun about you know, continuing education in the music industry. Austin Music Commission meets all the time. You can hear all sorts of people talk about what it means to be involved in the music industry. I mean, if you're getting started, go get plugged in. Okay. You know? All right. So you've done a lot of great things in, in your three plus years at the Texas Music Office. What's, what's ahead? What's ahead for the Texas Music Office? Well, I think we want to continue our mission to create infrastructure in the state, bottom line. I think we have to do that. I think that ought to be a long-term goal of the office. And we have to continue our momentum as a, an advocate federally. We can do a great deal of good for people as small, small businesses in the state by paying attention to things that are on the landscape, on the mm -hmm. horizon, right. and being translators of those things back home. And we can't okay. lobby for anything, and we can't advocate you know, for a, a policy, but if we can get in the game of understanding it before it happens right. and translating those concerns back home, I think we're doing our people a solid here. And then we can continue to raise money for those grants and give instruments and lessons to kids who are the future of this whole thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I really, I really will say, you know, creating more music-friendly communities in the state, making tech, Texas a, a, the most interconnected and powerful music economy in the country should be a goal. I mean, I think sure. having communities on board is going to help us accomplish that. Well, we as Texans think that Texas should be the epicenter of the of the musical <laughs> universe anyway, right? Sure. So, so I appreciate everything you're doing to make make sure that is the case. Well, thanks for the attention. I really do uh, love the opportunity to talk about what we're doing over there. Like you said, it's not an office that everyone knows exists. It's right. not one that you'd just assume the state would have, but what a fortunate thing to have it. And Absolutely. let's go, let's go, you know, take it out for a the walk it deserves. Right, right. Yeah. sure. So tell us again the website address for your office if they want to go browse around and see what you've done and what, what you have to offer. Yeah, it's texasmusicoffice.com. Okay. And you can find links, very, they're very apparent on the website to all of our social feeds. You can sign up for the newsletter where we monthly put out all of our activity for the month. We try to be very transparent about what we're doing so there aren't ever any questions about you know, if we're just laying around the office you know, having fun. I mean, uh, we are out and actively uh, pursuing these, these goals. So uh, come give us a follow and, and give us some input. Awesome. Well, Mr. Brennan Anthony, I appreciate you coming on the show. And thank you all for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Texas Music Office, go to texasmusicoffice.com. And thank you for watching the Trey Blocker Show. You can find us on YouTube, your favorite podcast app, and treyblockershow.com. Thank Thanks, you, Trey. sir. Appreciate you.
This has been the Trey Blocker Show. Please subscribe on YouTube or your favorite podcast app and visit TreyBlockerShow.com to donate so we can keep fighting to restore sanity to this great nation.